Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiatives podcast. I'm Oliver Hartwig and we're joined today by our Senior Research Fellow, Dr. David Law. Hi, David. Hello, Oliver. Last week, you had two pieces on KiwiSaver, one published in our newsletter, Insights, the other one in the New Zealand Herald. In both cases, you talked about the changes announced to KiwiSaver as a scheme. So perhaps we'll just start with that. What's changing in KiwiSaver? Yeah, well, some things are set to change in a few months' time, and uh, there are some other proposals. So what's changing shortly is that uh, every once in a while, every few years, there's a KiwiSaver default provider review. And as part of that, the number of default providers uh, has been reduced from nine to six. What does that actually mean, default provider? Well, when you first put into KiwiSaver, uh, when you change jobs, for for example, it's the scheme that you're allocated if you do nothing, if you don't actively choose which scheme to be in, basically. So, um, so the number of those have fallen, and um, when you are allocated into a default fund, uh, from now on, uh, you'll be allocated into a what's called a balanced fund instead of a conservative fund. So basically, the risk return profile is a little bit different. So, so the, gov- the government basically makes you take higher risks in return for potentially higher reward. Yeah, and so for some people, depending on um, your interaction with the scheme, this might actually be a good a good change if you, for example, enter the scheme when you're relatively young and don't. Uh, want to touch those savings for quite a while this could be a good change but the third change is something I'm a little bit more uh, nervous about and that's that the government's now ensuring that funds invested in these default uh, schemes uh, need to be invested more responsibly and who defines that well the government's define that basically what it means now is that these funds won't be able to invest in fossil fuels that's to begin with uh, so the issue there, I think, is that the um, the reason they've said that they've done that is because they want to be more in line with their climate change objectives. And the purpose of KiwiSaver is nothing to do with climate change. Uh, the purpose of KiwiSaver is actually to try and lift the savings and wealth of individuals for retirement who basically might have had a problem saving before. Oh, actually, the purpose of KiwiSaver is now also to allow you to buy your first home. Yeah, well, um, let's let's put that aside for now. It's uh, Neither of those things are anything to do with climate change. The risk, th- the issue is that having multiple, ob- multiple objectives like this makes it less likely that the first objective around savings can be met, if anything. Uh, and also, I think it's, it's a relatively slippery slope. We're starting with uh, fossil fuel investment now but will we next be required to invest in uh, local infrastructure perhaps building trains for example what will we next be uh, not allowed to invest in utes perhaps barbecues uh, who knows um, so it, it's it's now um, I think very susceptible to m- more incremental changes uh, along that way there seems to be a rule of thumb generally in policy making that for each policy objective you should have exactly one policy. But with KiwiSaver it seems to be everything now at once. So the government wants to use this as a means to save for retirement, as a means to help people get into their first homes, as a means to 
perhaps invest in climate-friendly policies as a means to increase and really boost infrastructure delivery. So KiwiSaver seems to be something now for everyone and for every purpose, all rolled into one policy. That can't really work, can it? Well, that's not the purpose of KiwiSaver. Compared to many new policies that are being put in place nowadays, which perhaps have very unclear objectives, KiwiSaver's objective was very clearly set out in the KiwiSaver Act that brought the, uh, the policy into place. So uh, it, it is a bit troubling. And it isn't even working for its original purposes? No, well, let's come to that a little bit later. But f first, um, let's talk about the, pro the other proposals that we've learned that the government is considering, which is to expand the scheme. And just to be clear, these are proposals that are not yet implemented, unlike the default saver, the Kiwi saver changes, but other stuff that the government is thinking about. Yeah, it, thinking about expanding, now there's a particular way they're thinking about expanding at this time. There have been many other calls to expand it in the past, say through one-off auto-enrolment exercises or making the scheme compulsory. To my mind, they're all very much the same thing. Uh, in this particular case, um, what's being considered is increasing contributions from 3% to 10% incrementally. Um, and so the, the issue I have with that is that Unlike a lot of government policies, KiwiSaver has actually been evaluated very rigorously uh, compared uh, to what we normally see. In fact, to the credit of the scheme's architects, uh, this was a sort of set up at when the scheme was first brought in that it had to be evaluated. And I was part of that mandated evaluation, um, and the results didn't come out very positive for KiwiSaver, actually. So from a public policy point of view, uh, what you want to do with poor performing schemes is scale them back, not scale them up. So this is this is quite uh, puzzling. So just to be clear, if KiwiSaver's purpose is to have a comfortable life in retirement, on 3%, most income earners won't get there. Uh, no, that's not that's not what it's about at all, actually. <laughs> so... Um, it is not about creating a comfortable retirement. The, the purpose of KiwiSaver is to lift savings and wealth accumulation for a target group of people, those who had a problem saving. Mm -hmm. um, but when we look and see if it's meeting its objectives, when we evaluated it rigorously over several years with work that was later published in peer-reviewed journals and the like, uh, it's not. It's not meeting its objectives. So perhaps I'll quickly run through some of the f mm -hmm. key findings from that work. So there were two... Uh, two studies in particular that we did. One of them looked at four key measures of success um, and it used a data set that was specifically designed for the evaluation of KiwiSaver. The first main finding was that only about a third of contributions to KiwiSaver accounts represented according to self-reported measures new savings. That's because people substitute between different forms of saving that would have otherwise happened anyway. The biggest one was people you know, pay a little bit less in their mortgage now and put some of that money into KiwiSaver instead and they just switch between these things. The uh, second uh, finding from that first study was that people were asked about the level of income they expected to have in retirement and what level of income they would need to meet their basic living costs in retirement or to live comfortably in retirement. And we used those to, to decide whether or not there was going to be a shortfall, basically, and did some analysis to, 
to see whether or not KiwiSaver membership had anything to do with that. And we found that KiwiSaver membership actually was completely unrelated to your retirement income outcomes in retirement, your expectations of them. Because people use different means. Well, that, that's one of them, um, mm. one of the reasons. Now, the third thing uh, is that we found that the scheme is extremely inefficient. So uh, in order, I mean, the, the purpose of KiwiSaver is quite specific in the act. It's not just to like have big KiwiSaver balances. It's to generate you know, new savings for people who would have been in a, in a position in retirement where they weren't able to have a good standard of living compared to pre-retirement. And when you try and take these things into account, what you realise is that for every one person that meets the requirements of what the scheme was designed to do, there are 14 other people in KiwiSaver who either aren't saving more because of KiwiSaver or didn't have a problem in the first place, um, which means that if you add up all the subsidies over sort of a contribution lifetime for these all these people, the one success and the 14 people who are just along for the ride, if you like, you end up spending about $300,000 to get a little bit of subsidy to the one one person that you're helping. So it's very inefficient. It's not and it, really targeted then. It's not very well targeted at all. That's, uh, it's hard to think of something that would be more poorly targeted. Mm. Uh, and then the fourth thing is, for people who, there are some people around who care about sort of macro uh, mumbo jumbo a little bit more than me and worry that there's a national sort of savings issue we have to worry about. For those people, we, we had a different kind of model to look at national savings, and we found even at, at that kind of level, KiwiSaver doesn't do anything. So that was the first study. Mm -hmm. The second study uses um, much more kind of detailed asset and liability information for people over eight years and followed people before and after the introduction of KiwiSaver. And we looked for whether or not KiwiSaver had any effect on people's net wealth. And it had no effect on people's net wealth. So uh, the scheme didn't really perform very well. So that's why I said it, it's puzzling that when a scheme's been evaluated rigorously uh, through cross-departmental evaluation uh, mandated by the legislation that brought the program into effect, um, we see people still wanting to scale up the scheme. So if the scheme works that successfully at 3% contributions, the logical conclusion that the government draws from this is let's make a 10% contribution. You have an interesting definition of logic, Oliver. Oh, just an interesting definition of irony. <laughs> exactly. So it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, it's actually fulfilling Einstein's criterion of madness, right? Yes. It's trying the same things again and again and expecting different results. Yeah. I mean, I, part of the issue is that uh, the evidence before KiwiSaver was brought into play wasn't really followed in the first place. That already showed that uh, a lot of, you know, relatively few people had a problem that needed to be fixed in the first place. Uh, so, you know, it's, with, with the benefit of hindsight, it's not necessarily so surprising. Mm. What is surprising really is that the government continues with this policy despite all the negative appraisals of the scheme's success so far. And I mean, you yourself, you have a long background in all of this. I mean, you worked on the statutory evaluation, as you mentioned already. You've done your PhD in this field. I mean, how many years have you spent on this now? 
I think I first started thinking about evaluating KiwiSaver in around 2010. So, uh, and, it, and it's interesting, um, you know, what I've said before is there are a lot of people that like to critique the evaluation of KiwiSaver. Uh, for very weak reasons. Um, their favourite reason is normally that the data is now a bit old, therefore we can't uh, rely on the evidence. But they said that the first day you know, the, the uh, studies were published. But in the last 10 years, no new evidence has come from these same people showing you know, rigorous ev um, evidence showing benefits or, or success of KiwiSaver against its objectives. So, and, and meanwhile... Uh, the evidence base internationally on similar such schemes keeps growing and we're um, not too dissimilar from what we see overseas. So um, the most uh, well-cited of these is a study by Raj Chetty, which was uh, on Denmark. I think that he looked at about 41 million observations in, on savings in Denmark and found for every dollar of uh, government subsidies, you got a whole extra one cent of additional saving, um, so I think um, you know it's uh, it's it's hard to make a strong case for scaling up KiwiSaver. Okay, so if the evidence simply doesn't exist for KiwiSaver or for KiwiSaver at least making a positive contribution, wouldn't you typically try to kind of close down that program and say actually that was a ambitious idea, it didn't work, let's try something else. That is what uh, I think good public policy would do. It's an, it is in fact what happened in the past as a result of this uh, evidence there were changes made to KiwiSaver um, in a couple of budgets around 2012-13 around there that reduced uh, um, tax credits and the like. Um, so I think that was the right thing to do at the time, and uh, scaling up KiwiSaver um, is probably not. Hmm. It's interesting. I mean, we're talking a lot about follow the science and follow the evidence and evidence-based policy making these days. We do this in different contexts. We do this for climate change. We're doing it now for COVID, of course. We rely on experts telling us what to do, but on this policy, the experts are virtually all ignored. Well, uh, perhaps not in the past, but um, perhaps few of us are around, less of us are around now in, in the um, public sector to uh, keep reminding people of these uh, results. Well, I guess what it means for you, David, is that you simply have to write more op-eds <laughs> for the New Zealand Herald. Um, but for now, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Oliver.